As medicines are developed to treat humans, the one ingredient that's consistent across every clinical trial is the patient. Yet traditionally, the way that patient experiences the trial has really been an afterthought. Thankfully, that's beginning to change. Hello and welcome to DataPoint, the podcast where we focus on all the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest this week is Joe Kim. Joe leads a team at Eli Lilly that's focused on translational technology and innovation. And for the better part of the last 20 years, Joe's been working in the clinical research space. For the benefit of our listeners who aren't directly involved in clinical research, I wanted to start this episode by briefly explaining what we mean when we refer to a clinical trial or clinical research in this episode. The gold standard for clinical research is the Randomized Controlled Trial, or RCT. An RCT is a study in which people are grouped randomly to receive one of at least two clinical interventions. One of these interventions is called the control. The control may be a standard practice, a placebo such as a sugar pill, or no intervention at all. RCTs are used to measure and compare the outcomes of each group after the participants receive the interventions. Now that we've got that straightened out, let me introduce to you Eli Lilly's Joe Kim. Joe, thanks so much for being with us on DataPoint today. My pleasure, Greg. It's great to be here. You're one of those folks in the pharmaceutical industry that I have uh, followed with interest for a long time, just because you always seem to be doing things that are a little ahead of the game and uh, always interesting. So I'm particularly eager to dive into some of your latest adventures. For the benefit of our listeners, can you give us a little bit of background as to how you came to be in the role you are uh, with Eli Lilly and uh, really kind of where you see it going? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, honestly, pharmaceutical research, drug research has been was my third career um, after my undergraduate. Um, after graduating with a molecular biology degree, uh, I really was bad at finding jobs, and so my first job was as a social worker, and I did that for a couple of years. I went back to school to get my teaching degree, and I taught high school science for a couple of years and uh, ended up in clinical research back in 1999. And a lot of people were just ended up in research. There wasn't like a, a, a collegiate path and, or certification or degree to, to get and then become a clinical researcher. There are now, I think. Um, but I ended up in research like many clinicians do. And I was a garden variety study manager, working on psychiatric trials, um, HIV, uh, met my spouse there, um, ended up going to a CRO, got exposed to a whole other set of indications, came came back to Merck, which was, so I did two tours of duty there at Merck. Um, and that's where I started to focus a little bit more on this sort of um, trial optimization, uh, which is a, a an old term for how do you take a study and really juice it and make sure it sings, make sure it, yep. it enrolls, make sure it's done with quality. Um, and this is the beginning of things like patient recruitment, um, medical informatics. Um, I ended up going to uh, an e-clinical technology company to get sort of a crash course in how technology really works. Uh, went, went to Shire for a, f- a few years, uh, tried to bring all my learnings and create a center of excellence there with mm-hmm. regard to patient centricity and trial optimization. Uh, and then I was recruited away by um, Jeff Kasher, who's who's well-known in the pharmaceutical research world as an innovator. 
and joined their clinical innovation team. And I did that for a number of years and, you know, focusing on helping the company figure out uh, kind of what to do next when it comes to clinical innovation and research, whether that's, you know, about patient centricity or social media or virtual trials, um, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, here I am um, having a lot of fun doing all this stuff. It's hard, though, right? If you're, if you're the first guy through the wall, you're always a little bloody. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would imagine that you have a few scars that you carry. Definitely. So one of the things that I've always found pretty intriguing is that you've you and you touched on this a little bit in your as you were introducing yourself, but this focus on a combination of the patient's experience with research as well as the use of technology and uh, and, and and other types of more technical innovation. And I guess I'm curious how you think about those things together, or are they completely separate in your mind? Give us your perspective there. Yeah, I think for a while, those things have been seen as separate, and partly because there was less patient interface. Clinical research is really, if you just look at it objectively, a set of medical procedures that have to be done in a certain order, in a certain uh, time frame, each quote-unquote visit. Um, and as far as medical procedures go, those have not, very little to do with technology, right? Whether it's a um, physical exam or a blood draw, and there's not a lot the patient needs to do. They sh- sort, of, s- sort of show up and they go through these procedures. And then the technology has usually been clinician-facing, right? Um, but now things are changing. And, you know, ideas of like a virtual tr- virtual visit where you do something through telemedicine or a mobile app. Now you're talking about technology that the patient has to then use. And while you could get away with creating less than perfect technology for a clinician who's being paid to run the research, when it's a patient volunteer, it's a different ballgame. And maybe we should have always been much more conscientious about designing great technology that fits into a person's life, whether they be a study coordinator, investigator, or patient. So it sounds like the idea of consideration of patient experience may have come about uh, in a little bit of a backwards way because we had to include them due to certain uh, technological constraints. But now the patient is, you know, there have been so many changes in the way that patients behave in general in terms of their level of empowerment, their level of access to information. Um, How have you seen some of those things changing uh, the way that trials are designed uh, to take into account some of those uh, some of those elements of the patient experience. Yeah, I guess I guess I'll say it slightly differently, or I'll use a slightly different lens. You know, the long pole in the tent for clinical research is patient enrollment, mm-hmm. and you know we can do everything pretty quickly, but then we wait around for patients to show up. Yeah, and it's hard for patients to show up. Um, because A, it's a brick-and-mortar experience that happens Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. Mm-hmm. Um, and participating in research amounts to um, taking off two, three, four hours every week for however many weeks that trial is going on. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people who can't afford to take that kind of time off, like huge sections of the population, right? All of skilled labor, they can't do that. Sure. Right? Teachers, they can't do that. And I could list, I could go on and on. Um and so when it comes to designing trials well that fit into patients' lives, first and foremost, we need to be really precise about and, and judicious around um, 
how much we're going to put this patient through. Like, does it really need to be a 90-minute visit? Do you really have to go back to the clinic just to get a physical and drop off the pills? Um, so I'm just trying to make a point here that do we always need to have the patient run back to the clinic? And when they're in the clinic, do we always need to have them do a bunch of stuff? What else could be done in the home? What else could be done at retail care uh, or local care? What else could be done through technology? And it's really just changing our mindset around what it means to participate. Like, as I said earlier, research is a set of medical procedures that have to be done in, within a window. Do they always have to be done in, that, in room 22A? Right? <laughs> Can they be done down the hall, across the street, across the state, at home? So let's talk about some of those aspects of the ways that this new way of thinking is, is uh, being applied in clinical trial work today. So you talked about, you know, being able to do certain checkups or pick up medications, uh, you know, at a, at a local uh, retail location or to be able to uh, enter data from home or enroll from home. Can you give us a, a, an idea about some of the technologies that are being applied and what parts of the process they are tending to have the greatest impact on? Yeah, good question. I think um, it's important to understand that because the technology can be readily used for one kind of study in a certain disease, it may totally not be fit for a different kind of disease. So what the startup world needs to understand is, you know, a dried blood spot is fine for this use case, but it's not fine for that use case. And this is very unusual for sort of tech startups to grapple with because, you know, they're measured by user growth and engagement. Right. Um, and just because it works for a diabetes trial doesn't mean it's going to work for Parkinson's. So clinical research isn't one market. It's dozens of markets, depending on the indication and also the type of study, because things can be done quite easily with technology in remote, flexible locations if it's a phase four observational study. Okay. You're talking a phase two proof of concept of an investigational new medicine under an IND. It's a different ballgame. Right. Yep. yep. Um, so I, it's hard to say which one is actually doing, uh, you know, gaining market share or being very popular or used. Um, what, I, what I might say is this. Um, there are certain low risk things that can happen safely by any qualified technician um, at any place, not technician, clinician. So I think home health might be the, the best example of that. Now, while that's not technology, it is more patient-centric, and the idea that you can send a clinician to the home to do a number of things that could be just as, done just as well in the office, too, is where kind of we can start. I think telemedicine has a, another good next step um, where, where there needs to be an engagement with the physician. Right? You're not going to fly investigators all over the place, but it's easy enough to fly or send a nurse. That's right. That's a different to different personnel. So I think that might be another good next step. Um, local labs, uh, you know, these companies who do local labs are the same companies that do our central labs in, uh, in research. So we could maybe start to rely on, on that infrastructure as well. You know, everything that you're describing, Joe, sounds kind of like common sense to me. And it makes me wonder, um, how much of that is really common sense? And are there specific kinds of barriers to overcome in terms of implementing these things? Yeah, I think part of it is conventions and well-worn grooves of mm. practice 
right? So the machinery of clinical research design and execution is rolling on, right? There's, there's dozens and hundreds of pharma and biotechs and CROs all running their studies um, in, that, in that traditional way. Um, so change is going to be slow. It's going to happen one study here, then indications in this phase, and then maybe a second indication in that phase, and then it, more phases in that indication. So it's going to take some time to, to, to grow. It's, it's not going to grow like Facebook or Uber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, makes sense. We're going to actually uh, take a quick break right now, but we are going to be right back with Joe Kim. So stick around. Today's show is brought to you by Bluespire, a full-service digital marketing agency focused on complex and highly regulated industries of healthcare, senior living, and financial services. Rapid changes in the healthcare industry are causing consumers to seek out trusted advice, demand more transparency and access to information and content. With over 30 years of healthcare experience, Bluespire knows how to help you reach, communicate with, and gain trust from these consumers. We help you engage with the right content at every touchpoint, from the first symptom search to appointment scheduling through care management. Visit us at bluespiremarketing.com to learn how we can help you deliver relevant, engaging content through ever-changing touchpoints that matter. We are back on the Data Point Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and with me today is Joe Kim from Eli Lilly. Joe, before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the ways that technology is being used to uh, not only improve the efficiency of trials, but also to improve patient experience and potentially to be able to recruit from a broader pool of patients uh, who who might not have access uh, or the ability to to spend as much time in the clinic as is traditionally necessary. There's another aspect of this that I'd like to touch on, and that is a piece of the way that we think about telemedicine that's evolved to include things like wearables and other kind of biosensors that would that would generate data. Uh, related to the patient. Can you talk a little bit about how sensors and wearables are being used in the context of clinical research? Yeah. I'm, first of all, there's no shortage of wearables and sensors that are fit to measure a ton of different things. And I think that's the problem. They're measured, they're, they're created and built to measure anything, which means they're not good for an, any one thing. Um, so let's, let's, let me give you a funny kind of analogy. Let's take a stethoscope, right? A doctor will use a stethoscope, that device, to listen to your lungs and heart, right? You wouldn't use that to listen to your car engine to diagnose some sort of motor issue, right? Yeah. Although it's probably good to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so we have to stop thinking about, hey, this is a listening device, and hey, you can, you can use it for anything. No, the stethoscope is designed to be used in that fashion, and so it's, it's, a, it's a funny analogy, but the idea of like an activity tracker. Oh, gosh, you can count steps and movement and this and that. And then the next question is, well, for what indication? Any indication. No. That's not. Tell me which indication you did the work to show that this activity means something clinically meaningful for that disease. Sure. And this is kind of where a lot of device startups have fallen short. They're so focused on the technology, they forget to establish what this technology is intended to measure. 
and create a bulletproof case around it. Now, some folks might say, gosh, well, that's so hard to do. It's, it's actually not. This, is, this, this kind of thing is done all the time. So if you take any kind of rating scale, let's take, I'll, I'll pick on the Pittsburgh Sleepiness Scale, which is developed in 1983 or 85 by you know, three academics out of Pittsburgh. And basically, it's a rating scale, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be provocative here. Um, it's a rating <laughs> scale to measure the quality of someone's sleep. So you're asking somebody a bunch of questions, and you're assigning points. So this is in the 80s. In their defense, that's all they had. Nowadays, there's so many good sensors out there that arguably um, can measure sleep and activity, different phases of sleep and duration and intensity, much better than having someone remember Right? How was it over the last week or whatever? Sure. But no one has done the, the same work that those three academics did to say, hey, this questionnaire actually measures uh, the right things about sleep in a way that clinicians sort of believe. And so, yeah, take, take any one of your sleep sensors, whether it's the Apple Watch or the Aura Ring or uh, Fitbit or whatever. Yeah, they, you know, there's claims that this, this measures sleep just as well as a polysomnograph or look at all the information you're getting. And that's great, but do the study with actual neurologists and sleep experts to say, yeah, this is actually measuring something clinically meaningful that I, that I would use in practice or at least measure severity of disease or quality of sleep or, or whatever. And so that's, it's that last step which has to be done. But it's no mystery because we have no shortage of scales out there that are subjective measuring something, whether it's depression or sleep or quality of life. Let's use that same good thinking and apply them to wearables and sensors. That is, it's really interesting that you say that because I hadn't thought of that before. The fact that, you know, we have claims of, you know, accuracy or validity, but not necessarily always proven claims. Um, I guess I'm wondering, is that something that is up to the manufacturer or are there uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, for example, that for whatever condition need to incorporate things like, uh, you know, a continuous uh, measurement of uh, heart rate or EKG data or sleep. And those trials would be done together through the pharmaceutical company. How does that, how will that work? Do you think? Yeah, good question. I think if the manufacturer wants to position themselves, if the manufacturer of a device wants to position themselves as having the gravity to measure something clinically meaningful with their device, well, then they need to do the work, right? So if, if there's a, a manufacturer who makes a butter knife, they're not, gonna, they're not going to market it as a screwdriver, even though sometimes I use a butter knife as a screwdriver, right? right. And so likewise, they can do whatever they want and, 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 and sell it, and people may use it in a variety of fashions. But until they actually create it purpose-built for that thing, there, there really is no business in saying, hey, we have this device, and it measures your depression better than anything else. Well, did, where's the study that supports that? And if it doesn't exist, well, then you're just a butter knife. Um, with regard to who should be doing it, yeah. um, if you think about endpoints in general, typically those have come from the medical community and academics uh, because they are they're they're more uh, they're positioned as the experts in the in the disease, whereas you know pharma companies are more experts in the molecule and how it affects the disease and, and that sort of thing, the biochemical pathway. But the clinicians are typically the ones who do this sort of thing. 
um, or academic research. Let's, let's think about A1C. So before good urine tests were available to put the business out, to put um, the sort of uroscopy out of business. So uroscopy is this practice of sniffing and or tasting urine to diagnose a variety of things, diabetes being one of them. Um, but then these good urine tests came along, right, where you didn't have to deal with the subjective opinion of a clinician. You could measure a number. Um, that wasn't developed by a pharma company. That was developed by some academics. And then we get to A1C, which was developed by Samuel Raybar, actually, who passed away a couple of years ago, an Iranian scientist. And it was validated in California with a, a female scientist. And, you know, A1C took a long time to, to become sort of the gold standard for measuring you know, di- diabetes, as a surrogate for diabetes. But even, even when those two things were developed, good urine tests for glucose and blood tests for A1C, um, it's funny, there's a quote in The Lancet back in the 1800s where you find a, there's a clinician, a physician, who laments the fact that um, you know, all these fancy tests are no match for what I can uh, determine through the sniffing of urine, which is <laughs> you know, comical now. Right? <laughs> like, um, I'll try and find the quote for you or the, or the quote, but you know, this change takes a long time and people just get stuck in their ways to some degree. Um, but who should be doing it? It's, it's a variety. It's a community of, 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 yeah. And that that completely makes sense. And I, as it, as as we're talking here, Joe, it occurs to me that what we're really talking about is the uses of the uses and usability of various types of data within the context of clinical research. And so I'm going to throw a couple more at you just to see what you think. What about real world evidence? things that are coming out of uh, electronic medical records, for example. Any role in, in, the, uh, in the clinical research process? Yeah, I think there's many, many different use cases of real-world evidence. I think we also have to be, we can't be too naive in, in understanding how real the evidence is, <laughs> how okay. real-world it is. Okay, tell me so, about that. What, what, what do you mean if, by that? Yeah, if you're looking at um, claims or, or traditional EMR system, how real are those billing codes representing the true gestalt of the patient, right? Oftentimes those, you know, EMRs traditionally were built for billing and not necessarily medical diagnosis. So it's not that real. It's still a sliver or some constellation, not the actual illustration. Um, Certainly in the clinical notes, there's a lot of extra stuff. And Mm -hmm. I've read that, you know, 80% of the medical information is in the clinical notes, not in the the fields for the EMR. So what can we do to pull, use natural language processing and really pull the the quote-unquote data, real-world evidence out of the clinical notes and really start to make sense of it? Um, So I think defining what real-world really means, and let's not forget social media, a lot of discussion and, and um, characterization of disease happens right out there. Um, not by everyone, but by a lot of people. And so that's real world to some degree too. And how do we make sense of that? So there's lots of different evidence out there. Let's make sure it's real. It's not quotes real world, that it's real, real world. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways that can be used. I think some people have talked about using it as kind of like a virtual placebo arm, right? Instead of making people randomized placebo, can't we just look at the medical record and assume all these people didn't get the investigational drug, i.e. placebo? Um, that's one thing. Another thing is really helping to 
um, formulate a hypothesis because lots of stuff does happen in medical practice that hasn't been studied, right? Whether it's a, a drug that's approved for one indication, but people are using it for something else, um, or is there an unmet need, a symptom that gets captured with a certain class of drugs or a certain drug? And are we, can we see that in the record versus being blind to it, right? So, you know, something causes headaches all the time. And so there's, a, there's an overprescription of some other painkiller in conjunction with this, you know, approved drug. Hey, well, let's, let's create, let's find a way to create a drug that's got a better safety signal. Um, so there's, there's a number of ways you can use real-world evidence to a, inform your research, test your hypothesis, um, or run a trial more, more efficiently, more safely um, in terms of uh, patient exposure. How do you feel about genomic data? Um, any particular role of interest in clinical research for genomic data as it's becoming more and more prevalent and accessible by individuals? Yeah, genomic data has a is a constantly evolving field, and it evolves hand in hand with our understanding of disease. So, for example, um, BRCA one as a genomic marker used to not quote unquote mean anything, um, although it was discovered. Let's say um, it certainly means something now. And while you could do a lot of genomic um, profiling, it does have to be meaningful um, if you want to leverage it to develop precision medicine, let's say, or find the right kinds of patients. How do we establish whether a particular piece or type of genomic data is meaningful? Yeah, well, without getting too eggheady, <laughs> eggheaded, <laughs> um, truly understanding a disease process and the pathology of it and how your your genes are are, are Maybe the culprit, or maybe it's further down during RNA transcription or translation, or is it um, something else with the with the um, proteome or the the biome or even the metabolites? Like there's there's so many so much thing so much going on. The cocktail in your gut, let's say, is a, is a mix of genes, proteins, bacteria, metabolites, all sorts of things. Um, and understanding the disease process and exactly what things are going wrong that create, you know, said disease, only then does a certain genomic, genomic informational profiling actually make sense. And then you have to think, well, what do I target? Do I actually target the gene or can I target the, trans, the, the protein or the translation of that gene? Yeah. Or is it some other enzyme that I just, you know, block so that, you know, it, it I, I get it on the back end. And so there's a, you know, the human body works like a like a factory, and you can interrupt a factory way in the beginning, somewhere in the middle, or certainly at the end. Interesting, man. It is it's incredible how much complexity can be introduced to the research process, and it's really coming home to me as we talk about you know all of this potential uh, for inclusion. But I. I You've you've sold me, Joe. I keep um, my head is now going to. We must be sure that any of the kind of information that's being used is, in fact, meaningful and uh, meaningful in a provable way. Um, I, because I can imagine this the the complexity getting out of control pretty quickly. Yeah, and it's, you know, the worst case scenario is you you think something is is what it is, and it's not. Right? You're wrong. You get a false positive. And you know sometimes that happens, and this is the this is the nature, this is the high risk nature of, of of clinical research. You 
you spend a lot of time and money doing something only to find out you were wrong. And failure is certainly a big part of science in general, definitely clinical research. And failure doesn't mean we do research not because we're trying to validate what we believe is true. We do research to really find the truth about something. Sometimes being wrong characterizes the truth about something. Yeah. And, you know, more often than not, science is about failure. And it's about looking at things the wrong way or finding the wrong key to unlock something. And it's important to find those things because that means you're closer to finding the right one. Exactly. Well, I think that's probably a good way to close us out of this uh, part of our conversation. But before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about your podcast. You mentioned that you have uh, started doing some interviews and some podcast production. Tell us about what you're up to. Yeah, it's it's really fun to a, a be on this side of the microphone. <laughs> um, so yeah, we we're we're launching a podcast at Lily called the Elixir Factor, um, and it's a it's a really great uh, podcast about science and the stories that inspire innovation, um, resilience to to stick to it and make change. Um, and we have a bunch of really great guests and topics um, focused on clinical research and medical development. So yeah, tune in. That is fascinating. Factor. And I know you mentioned that at least initially it's uh, intended for internal consumption. Do you think the uh, the rest of us in the big world are going to have an opportunity to listen to it as well? Yeah, no, to be clear, it's intended for a global audience, uh, Great. general public. Um, but So yeah, at some point, everyone will be able to access it. That is fantastic. Mm. Well, when there is a place to do so, I will make sure that it's included in our show notes. But until then, uh, listeners, stay tuned. Joe, thank you so much for being with us today. I could do this for hours, literally. Um, and so I, I, I so appreciate you sharing your insights. And uh, I'm going to be continuing to watch where you're going with interest because it always seems to be uh, somewhere pretty fascinating. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.